this morning, we're going to jump into chapter four. Before we jump into chapter four, we've got to go back to chapter two. And, and, and you already feel like you're in a bad movie, right? Fast forward, rewind. But, but chapter two, what we see in John chapter two, verses 24 and 25 is really two things. But, we, but Jesus did not commend himself to them because he knew all men. Verse 25, he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. And, and what we saw in John chapter three, if you recall, we were leading into John three, Jesus has a, a piercing and penetrating knowledge of people like, like no one else ever had. He knows men. He knows what's inside of men. We get a great example of that in his interaction with John, uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And, and now we're going to go from Nicodemus, and that was on full display as, you, as Nicodemus thinks he's just showing up to have a theological conversation. You know, this is what theologians do, right? They, they want to debate how many angels can fit on the head of a pen. You know, like really important stuff that's going to impact you on Tuesday, right, in, in your life. So Nicodemus probably showed up for some theological talk. He said, man, this is a good rabbi. I can find out some things from him. Um, he's doing miracles. He's just investigating him a little bit. And Jesus goes right to his greatest need. He just cuts through the, the shenanigans and goes right to the heart of what Nicodemus did. But now we're going to travel to the other end of the societal spectrum in chapter four. Nicodemus was a prim, proper, religious, moral, social elite in Jewish culture. And now we're going to go the exact opposite direction. We're going to go to a Samaritan woman. We're going to see that if you take Nicodemus and you put all of his character qualities that I just listed, she's going to be the exact opposite, the exact opposite in every single way licentious, Samaritan. We'll get to why that's a big deal in a second. Just syncretized religious worship, just all over the map. And what you're going to see about your Savior is he knows her just as well as he knows Nicodemus. He, he gets her just like he gets Nicodemus. I don't want to get too much into that phrase. <laughs> the commercials are going out, but he, but he does. He, he does get her. He gets Nicodemus. He knows all men. He knows what's in men. And I would even go a step further and say this, that Jesus Christ cares about all men. I think I could legitimately say that from the scriptures. And we're going to see that this morning. Because as we set the stage for the conversation, we're just going to get into the very beginning of the conversation. We're kind of the the whole morning, we're setting the stage for this conversation. But what we're going to see is that Jesus does a couple of things that are really miraculous, in, in my opinion, based on human wisdom. Because Jesus has a thriving ministry that he's going to leave for one person. Jesus is going to go against cultural norms that will make him look bad to other people because he cares for one person. He's not doing anything wrong. He's just bucking up against society and what society has said. He's not doing anything sinful or wrong, but he is going to do all of this for the sake of one divine appointment that's on his agenda. And we're going to see it's been on his agenda. We're going to see that from the language that he cares about this woman. Now, you know, if it's you and me, and we're designing Jesus Christ's ministry, first of all, when the popularity started, we would fan that flame. We would, we would get it even more popular. In fact, probably many of us would build some buildings that would house all the people, right? And build some coverings and make, make room for more. And if we were gonna take him from a thriving ministry, we sure wouldn't send him to an outcast in Samaria. I might send him to the king of Samaria, I might send him to the most prominent citizen 
in Samaria. I wouldn't send them to this woman. This is crazy. And it is crazy because it doesn't match the way we think. And praise God. (laughs) Because what you're going to see in this woman of Samaria is you're going to see elements of yourself here. And you're going to be thankful that we have a God who pursues. And he pursues people that are unworthy. And you know what? As, as the scriptures say, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am chief. So if you're a sinner this morning, you recognize that you are not worthy, you qualify for heaven. That's the qualification you need. Recognize that, trust in the Savior, and he will qualify you for heaven. That's the good news of the gospel. And so let's set the stage this morning for this encounter. Let's go to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says this, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And so again, therefore, notice that what Jesus is about to do is based on this knowledge that he gains regarding the Pharisees, and they're monitoring his ministry. They're starting to pay closer attention to his ministry. Remember what happened in chapter two? He, he said, ah, he told his mom in Canaan Galilee, ah, my hour's not yet. So he's, he does kind of a private miracle, but then he shows up in Jerusalem and he clears the temple. And, and you're gonna see this, I, I don't wanna call it a dance, but, it, but in a sense, it's a dance. He, he pulls back, he pushes forward. He pulls back, he pushes a little bit. It's throughout his life where it's not this just ramped up in your face with the religious leaders all the time. I mean, he had those knockdown dragouts with them, but it's not all the time. And so we're gonna see here, he, this is a, a section where he's gonna pull back. Now, what's really interesting here, and, and you might've picked it up, you might not have, it's kind of subtle, but notice how John here in, in verse one, he uses the word Lord and Jesus interchangeably. Now, for those of us that grew up in church, that, that barely registers. Like we see that all the time, you know. But it is significant because it's the first time that he uses the word Lord in the Gospel of John. It's the first time he IDs him as the Lord. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, Lord generically just meant master or leader or something like that. But what's really significant in the Jewish mind is how this Greek word, kurios, was used to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh. In fact, in their Greek Old Testament, the translation done by the Jews to translate their Hebrew scriptures into Greek so that the, the majority of the people could understand and read their own scriptures, they used this Greek word kurios to trans Yahweh over 8,600 times. So when a Jew in the first century heard kurios, their, their mind would naturally gravitate toward, oh, is it, they're talking about Yahweh or are they just using this word generically? And so it's interesting that right away, you know, and and by the way, does John have a problem identifying Jesus as God? He's got no problem with that. He just, he just like busted that out in verse chapter one, verse one, right? It's like right up there in your face in case you didn't see it. But again, just a little subtle thing here uh, that he uses. And so somehow the Lord Jesus, as this verse tells us, uh, knew, or the, the Greek word means he came to know. He gained knowledge of the fact that somehow the Pharisees were keeping their eyes on him. They were monitoring him. And this is what the Pharisees did, right? We saw that back in chapter, chapter one. John the Baptist starts getting popular. They send a delegation to check on him. They viewed themselves as the shepherds of Israel. They got to monitor. And, and although that sounds very noble on their part, it turned into a very selfish thing on their part because they're like, we don't want anyone more popular or more power than we have. 
That's what it turned out to be. And so they're monitoring Jesus. Jesus kind of found out about this in some way. Now, some might even ask, why is this even an issue? Why would Jesus care, right? In fact, the American rebel in each one of us says, you know what, I'm gonna do my thing. I don't care what anyone else thinks, right? I'm doing the right thing. They can go fly a kite or, you know, insert your other description there. But they can just, who cares what they think? But you know, it's, it's interesting because Jesus was sensitive about this, especially early, especially early on in his ministry. And it wasn't because he was afraid of them. That's, that doesn't enter the equation here. One thought uh, that some people have is that he wished to avoid any kind of appearance of competition with John the Baptist. We kind of saw how his disciples responded last, last two weeks. They were a, a little concerned that John's popularity was waning. People were starting to go to Jesus. So maybe this was a statement where he didn't want it to seem like they were competing with one another because he is water. They are water baptizing. We'll talk about that here in a second. Why was he doing that? Um, however, I think there was a, an even more important reason for his withdrawal in terms of big picture, what's going on in the mind of the Lord Jesus. I think that he was very sensitive, and we picked this up all throughout the book of John, for what he called uh, his father's hour or his hour or his time, right? Back in John 2, we already saw that. He told his mother, he said, it's not yet my hour, right? In other words, there's, there's a time element to what he was designed to accomplish on earth, and he didn't want anyone racing that clock forward. He wanted to be on God's perfect timetable, God the Father's perfect timetable. In this hour, when Jesus talks about his hour is time, we can see from these other passages, this is his time to be betrayed and crucified for the sins of the world. This is what he's talking about. His hour had not yet come. In other words, it wasn't ready for him to die for the sins of the world. And in John 13, 1, I'm just going to, you've got multiple cross references there, but let me just pull up John 13, 1. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, what's he talking about? His betrayal, is, 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 the very, is that very night, his betrayal, his hour had come, his crucifixion, his resurrection, that he should depart from the world to the Father. And so he understood that his hour was then at hand. When we get to John chapter 13, we'll see that. And so I think what Jesus was doing as he hears the Pharisees are monitoring him, watching him, taking tabs on his ministry, I think he's being careful and sensitive not to put his ministry too front and center at this period in time because it would almost potentially come off as antagonistic. I mean, we see how the Jewish religious leaders respond to him in every interaction he has. Imagine if he just kept doing it more and more. It's just, it's just amping, amping it up, right? Amping it up prior to the time where it needs to be amped up. And so first reason, why did he do this? I, I think one of the main reasons, just kind of going to the heart of God, is I think one of the most effective approaches to get them to believe and change their minds is not to keep pushing it in their face. You ever, you ever been in a disagreement with someone and you just kept pushing your argument and pushing your argument and pushing your argument and pushing your argument? And they responded well to that, right? Like that's a, that's a great approach to people, right? Just keep jamming it right in their face. No, of course we know that. So, so what do you do? Maybe you present your argument and maybe you back off and you give them time to think about the argument and consider the argument. And then you maybe have another interaction where you push forward and you present the argument again and then you back off. You, you give them time to sort through the material. You know how it feels when someone is jamming something in your face. You can't even hear what they're saying because you're, you're so on the defensive, 
that now it's all about defending the line and you even forgot what the issue was about. Now it's just like, I got to win because this person's in my face. Like I'm, I'm done. I got to win, right? And so I think maybe there was a sensitivity to that. But I think second reason, if he was in their face from the outset, I think, as I mentioned earlier, this would have potentially ramped up their anger towards him possibly expediting his betrayal, possibly expediting his crucifixion, which would not have been on God's timetable. And this is really what this is all about, I I believe. Ultimately, he wanted to avoid this unnecessary premature conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. Because again, if he didn't, they would interfere with his ministry and his schedule, the, the, the divine schedule. And, and one of the things that we've got to understand, and we've talked about this a couple of times in the book of John, you'll, you'll remember it, or if you don't, you'll remember it once I put it up. God had a perfect time frame for Jesus Christ. It wasn't like God woke up one day, of course he doesn't sleep, but it wasn't like God woke up one day and said, you know what, today's the day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to incarnate him today. You know, there was a game plan. There was a, a timeline. The Old Testament testified to it. In fact, it had to happen exactly the way God said it would, or then God is a liar because he prophesied that it would happen. Where do we get that? Well, uh, again, not to go into too much detail because this is a sermon or two in itself, but Daniel 9, 25 through 26, we read this. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And so you see that this is a timing element. You can go to the command to restore and build Jerusalem, Artaxerxes 444 BC. You can do the math from these 60 62 and seven groups of sevens, assuming those are seven years. And that, again, that's why it's a sermon in and of itself to go into. But if you do the math, like uh, one scholar, Harold Honer did from Dallas Theological Seminary, you do the math from the decree, it takes you all the way to Passion Week. God delivers on time. And that's what Jesus is doing. There is an hour, there is a time frame. there is something that God predicted that must happen exactly when he said it would happen. And if he stayed ramped up in their face, it had the potential to drive that time frame forward where they couldn't hold their anger and their murderous thoughts back. And so he's going to retreat the area. Galatians 4 tells us the same thing. But when the fullness of the time had come, in other words, when the timing was right, according to God's timetable, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to do what? To redeem those who were under the law. And so what we're going to see is that Jesus left Judea and he departed to Galilee. And again, it was motivated by his awareness. It was probably too early in his ministry to to get these guys too revved up to where they couldn't turn back and they pursued him via murder. Now, um, let me see how this map turns up for you. Okay, it's all right. It's not... It's not the best. It's hard to get it uh, big up here on the screen sometimes. But if you remember in John chapter 3, Jesus is in this area. That's kind of a star area we're guesstimating. It's somewhere in the Judean wilderness over by some water because he's doing, he's performing water baptisms. And so what you can see is that he needs to go to Galilee, okay? We look at that map and it just makes sense. Well, to get to Galilee, you got to go through Samaria. Unless... 
you're using Apple Maps and they take you the wrong way, right? And it's like, and then, I mean, that happens sometimes. But the straight shot is right there, just kind of that line that we're looking at, that straight shot. So you got to go through Samaria. Logically, that makes sense to, to, to the mind that's, uh, you know, distanced from this time period by 2,000 years. This makes sense. Yeah, he's going to Galilee. He's got to run through there, right? I'm going to, I'm going to Auburn. I'm going to have to go through LaGrange, you know? Nuts. I like to circle around LaGrange sometimes, but with all the construction. But, but that's kind of the idea. To get there, you got to go through here. And so it kind of, it kind of makes sense, but we're going to see that God's got a lot more in mind than just making sense. And we're going to also see that there was alternate routes to Samaria that many Jews took that day. So it wasn't the only way to get there. And so we'll kind of work through that. But before we do, there's a little sidebar, and it's kind of set apart in verse 2 with parentheses. Did you notice that? You're almost like, why does he even include this here? This just seems so, like, random, right? Why? He says in verse 2, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. And you sit there, ask your question, like, why is this even here? You know, and, and we look back at John the Baptist's testimony. Remember G, uh, John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus? He says, I baptize with water. But remember what he says, there's one coming after me who does what? Baptizes with the spirit and with fire. There's gonna be a, a unique separate baptism than, than what I'm doing right now. And this is what uh, John says. So why is this here? What, what is he talking about? Well, a couple of quick thoughts here. I think in some subtle way, John, through recording this detail, uh, is showing us that, that water baptism is not the same as spirit baptism. Otherwise, Jesus would have been doing it, right? If he's, he's the one doing spirit baptism and, and it's the same as water baptism, then he would, just, he would have been the one doing it. But clearly he's not. He, he clearly has separated himself from this activity. Remember, baptism is simply an identification, Right? And in this day, what were they identifying with through this physical act? They were identifying with the message of John the Baptist. They were identifying with the message of Jesus. What was the message? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Your king is here. I believe that I'm going to identify with that message via water baptism. So this is not spirit baptism. And I think the Lord is careful uh, to probably back off here on the water baptism so that people don't confuse it with that. Secondly, I think, he, uh, again, uh, people get confused by rituals. <laughs> they, they get attached to rituals. And so if Jesus is the one baptizing, in fact, later in the book of 1 Corinthians, they argue about this, right? Well, I was baptized by Paul. You know, it's like, that was their trump card. You should listen to me because I was baptized by Paul. Well, you should listen to me because I was baptized by Peter. You know, and, and so there's this way that people become sectarian over these things. And so, uh, you know, he keeps his hands off of the water baptism in that way. But I also think this was a subtle way for Jesus's ministry to identify with John's ministry and show they're not in competition. They're actually working together. They're, they're in partnership. They're of the same mind. They're preaching the same message. They're pointing to the same person, which is Jesus Christ himself. And so they play different roles, but the message was the same. And so we see this uh, in the first three verses, but then we get to verse four, very short verse, but packed with lots of things uh, contextually and culturally that I like to kind of try to bring out here. Verse four says this, but he needed to go through Samaria. So the, the idea is he's, he's leaving Judea, he goes to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria is what it says. This word needed, it's, it's a Greek word, it's, uh, you can see it up there, it's day. 
And what it, what it communicates is something that's necessary. Uh, it communicates something that must be done, something that has to happen, you could say. That's what this Greek verb communicates. And what's really fascinating about how this is put together, um, that just doesn't, just doesn't jump off the page at first glance, is this verb is in the imperfect tense. And what it does is it indicates an action and process that's occurring in the past with no assessment of the action's completion. Okay, translation of that. It is basically telling us that this woman, this meeting has been on the heart and mind of God for some time. You imagine that? (laughs) You You imagine God having you on his heart and mind for some time? That's what the verb communicates, that he needed to do this. This, this had to happen. This has been going on for some time, this, this need to, to get Jesus there. And it shows us that he's been thinking about her. He has been longing for the day to lock this in on the schedule of Jesus Christ while he's on earth. And now's the time. This is what this verb is communicating. It, it, she wasn't an afterthought. She wasn't like, well, you know, I really need to get him up to Galilee, but I guess he can bump into this girl for, you know, this lady at the well for a couple hours. No, she was on his mind. It's kind of what's communicated there. What's also interesting about this word choice is, is it makes it sound like it's the only way to Samaria. That's not true. And that's not what the word is bringing out. It's not bringing out that geographically he, need, he had to go through there because that's the only place the road was. That's not what it's bringing out at all. There's a, another reason that Jesus needed to go through there, and it was for her. That's why he went. He, he had to go through there. That's why this was a must. And so, again, without a cultural awareness of, of this and that, we, we would look at a map and say, oh, yeah, of course he had to go through Samaria. That's, that's on the way. That's a straight line to Galilee. But there's more going on here than that. In fact, when we continue to look at the word choice, the, the verb structure is in the active voice. And what that, that, that indicates is that Jesus chose to go there. He knew and he chose. He knew that he must go there. And it implies that he's been wanting to get there as well. Can you imagine that? I mean, the, the, the amount of things and people on the mind of the Son of God while he's traversing this earth, he's here with you, but his mind is also thinking about the next person that he must reach and that he's designed to have an appointment with. It's just, it's just mind-blowing to see uh, the mind of God. And again, just to point out, it's totally different than the way we think. Successful ministry, bursting at the seams. What do we think? Stay there. This is a work of God. We, we got to stay there. We, we can't leave this and go to some individual that's not even worth two cents in our own culture. We would never do that. That's not the way God thinks about things. It's not the way he moves because he cares about individuals. And we see this all throughout the scripture. We could just, just walk through the scriptures and see this, the Ethiopian eunuch, another great example, Philip just blowing it up in Samaria, ministry-wise, and he gets called to this deserted road for an Ethiopian eunuch. Lord, let someone else reach him. I'm, you know, I'm blowing it up in Samaria. People are responding. Lord cares about individuals. We just got to remember that. That's just such a, such a great encouragement, I think, for each one of us, but also for others that we know of out there as well. One of the things I think his disciples would have said is, really, do we have to? <laughs> like, 
Like, Jesus, you know, you know there's another way around this thing, right? You know, there, we don't have to go through there. You know that, right? And so they're, they're a little bit concerned. So let's kind of develop um, culturally why this would have been the case. Um, it's very interesting for a couple of reasons. And, and one of the reasons is some Jews in Jesus' day, they would take what we call the scenic route <laughs> around Samaria. And they would actually go east of the Jordan River. They would go all the way up through, through an area known as Perea. Um, and then they would cut back over when they got past Samaria. So you can see Perea right there. It's on the east side of the Jordan. So they would, they would jot over uh, to the right from Judea. They would run up the east side of the Jordan River. They'd get you know, past uh, uh, Samaria, and then they would, they would jump over back into Galilee on the left. So it, what it tells us is this wasn't the only route to Samaria. This is not why Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Again, it was the, the woman who was there is why he needed to go through Samaria. In fact, we know um, just, just from, from history that a, that a straight walk from Judea to Samaria or to Galilee through Samaria took three days. It was a, about a 20-hour walk, and they would split that up generally over three days. Now, the reason um, that some took this inconvenient route uh, was because of the hatred, this, this deep-seated Notice it says mutual hatred. So this was going both ways. This was Jews hating Samaritans, Samaritans hating Jews. And so many Jews said, you know what? I'm just not going to go through their territory. I can't stand them. They can't stand me. I can't stand them. I would just rather go around is kind of the idea. And um, part of the reason is they were viewed as half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile. They were religious compromisers. We'll kind of develop these concepts as we go uh, forward. And so also because of these truths, it was very unsafe for a Jew to travel through Samaria. They, they were exposed to a lot of evil, a lot of danger, a lot of violence as they hiked through and, and kind of came around mountain passes and stuff. They were subject to, to theft and beatings and all sorts of stuff because they were Jews. And so it wasn't exactly the safest route to go as well because of that. Now, some of you that know Israel's history, you know that the heritage of the Samaritans dates all the way back to, to 722 BC. And that's the captivity when the Assyrians came in and took the northern kingdom captive. Okay, and this is where the Samaritans were born and bred. The, the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. Okay, and so this is where all of this came from. But what we learn in, in history is that the Assyrian empire, and they did this with multiple nations that they conquered, they had a strategy on how to destroy national unity and loyalty. And their strategy looked like this. We're gonna take the most substantial citizens from that country. We're gonna deport them to Assyria and we're not gonna let them go back home. And then we're gonna take citizens from our country and we're going to import them into the, to the land and then we're gonna require them to intermarry and inter intermingle. And what would end up happening? Cultures would be destroyed. The, the, the mix, the syncretization of culture, religion just happened. And, they, and this is how they would effectively wipe out a people group off the face of the earth because now they're a mixed Samaritan breed. And this is exactly what happened with the Jews in the Northern Kingdom in that area of Samaria. In fact, they began to syncretize their religion. They adopted elements of paganism along with their Judaism and they put together you know a soup of 
you know, apples and pickles. I mean, it's the stuff that just doesn't go together, right? I mean, they, they just put a soup together of garbage. And this is what the Samaritans in their culture was. In fact, as you trace further through Old Testament history, these are the people, the Samaritans, who opposed Nehemiah in building the wall. You've heard of San Ballet or San Ballet, I like to call them, um, who opposed the building of the wall. They were of the Samaritans. They opposed the Jews at every step of the way. In fact, they were upset when Jerusalem had been rebuilt. So they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in about 400 BC. She's going to reference that in this conversation. That's why we're giving all of this background right now. That was where the temple for the Samaritans were. They didn't believe in the temple in Jerusalem. We're not going there. We're not going to what Zerubbabel built and Nehemiah contributed. We're not, gonna, we're not going there. We're going to Mount Gerizim. That was their mindset. Unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, however you might look, a Jewish leader, a Hasmonean leader in about 128 BC destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. And so that inflamed tensions even more between these two people. And so all of this is just leading up to the hostility between Jew and Samaritan. And then the typical Jew accepted the entire Old Testament as canon. The Samaritan said, nope, just the Pentateuch. Don't quote me anything outside of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I won't listen to it. I only accept the Pentateuch. And so they're missing a large amount of revelation in the Old Testament um, because of their approach to the scriptures. The main reason, as we've said multiple times, Jesus needed to be there for the one woman. But there's a lot of things going on culturally here that we need to kind of be aware of. And so setting the stage further as we kind of get into verses five through six, let's read it. So he came to a city of Samaria, uh, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. and Jesus, therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, Sychar is mentioned there, it mentions it in the text. It has a historical significance to Jews because this is the exact area that Jacob had purchased to put this well here. And it was a very impressive well. And we know that in arid climates, uh, desert climates, wells are extremely valuable, right? Clean water, very, very valuable. And it's really interesting. We won't get into the details, but John uses some words here in describing this well that seem to indicate that not only was it a well, but that there was a spring that fed the well. And in history tells us, and archaeology discovers, tells us this well was probably about 150 feet deep. I mean, so it's, it's deep down there, but it was spring-fed underground, and thus it, it, the water would never run out. Also very interesting in the way this conversation's about to go, uh, that that's true of Jacob's well. And so Jesus, it says, was wearied. Uh, and, and being wearied means that he was worn out, or he was about to faint. You know, ever mowed the lawn in Georgia. You can relate, you know, in some way to this, you know, especially if you got a push mower, right? You can relate to this. And what it tells us is that Jesus was not some superhuman in some superhuman body that never bled, sweat, cried, hurt. All of those things were true of him because he had a human body. You know, he didn't, he didn't rip his shirt off and there was an S or a J on his chest, you know. Where, I mean, he was, he was in a human body. He got, he got worn out. And those of you that have never been to Israel, I, I haven't either. I'd love to go, obviously, one day. But um, I did find a, uh, you know, a topographical map, which I think would put this in perspective. 
But, you know, typically when you look at a map, it looks flat. You, you don't really understand what you're up against. You know, I remember Carrie and I went on our honeymoon to Montana. And, and I remember looking at a map. We, we, we're from Texas, okay, so um, not a lot of mountains in Texas, not a lot of trees in Texas. So everything's pretty flat, right? So I'm used to looking at a map, going, you know, doing the old, you know, the old days where you had to measure with a ruler and... Okay. Some, some of y'all remember that. You had to measure with a ruler and kind of see how far you were. And I, and I remember just measuring on a map in Texas and I could say, oh, that's 60 miles. It's going to take me 60 minutes. And I'd say 180 miles, 180 minutes. And I would just do the math and say, oh, that's about three hours. We went to Montana. I tried to do the same thing. 60 miles, 60 minutes, right? No, try 180 minutes. Because I didn't no, the mountains were there. And it was, you don't just bust through a mountain. You got you to gotta work your way around. But this is, this is a topographical map of Israel. Jesus is uh, kind of right in this area in Judea, and he's heading into this area. So you can see it's, it's an uphill climb from there. So by the time he gets there, we don't know how long he's been hiking at this point, um, but he's worn out. He's thirsty, just like uh, we would be. And again, reminder that that hike from Judea to Galilee would have been about a three-day hike, about a 20-hour hike through mountainous terrain, okay? And so it just kind of puts the perspective there. And again, Jesus was human. He sat down to rest. He, he needed water for his human body. John is going to give us this, this detail here. And it seems, it's always interesting. The Bible will give details, and sometimes you, you, you blow past it. You don't pay much attention Sometimes it catches your attention. You're like, I'm going to check, I'm going to check that out more. Like, what does that mean? Why would that be significant? And he obviously mentioned it for a reason. You know, it's, in English, we have a lot of throwaway words like, um, er, you know, I, I know in Spanish, they, they say everything's like, well, pues, pues, and then they just kind of move through transition. We have a lot of throwaway words. I don't think there's any throwaway words in the word of God. They're like, they're there for a reason. And so these are awesome things to kind of pay attention to, but it tells us a little bit more about our narrative that, that they were there about the sixth hour. First of all, we have to ask the question, according to what reckoning? Because the Jews reckoned the sixth hour from six, from 6 a.m. So it'd have been noon. The Romans reckoned from noon forward. So their sixth hour would have been 6 p.m. So the question is, was he there at noon? Or was he there at 6 p.m.? And I think there's some details in the, in the passage, we'll bring those out as we go, that he was there at noon. I'm gonna make the argument he was there at noon, okay? Um, again, if you wanna talk more, we can. I, I would love to. This is an interesting discussion. But if this is true, following the train of thought, and if this is right, we actually learn some interesting things about this context. It explains why the disciples were not with Jesus when this conversation happened. We're gonna look in verse eight that they went into the city to buy food. I would make the argument that if it was 6 p.m., not only would they be going into the city possibly to find food, but they'd probably be looking for lodging as well at this time before it got dark. But it doesn't say that. It just says they're going to look for food. But it also tells us, and we'll talk about that more later, it also tells us a bit about the woman Jesus was about to interact with. Here's the thing. Women typically did draw water for their families, but they typically did it in the evening because they didn't want to be in the heat of the day. And they typically came with groups because it was a social time. As one woman is filling up water, they're hanging out, chatting, catching up on, you know, it's like the coffee pot, you know, in the office, you know, they're catching up on gossip, catching up on everyone's family. 
And so it was a group social event. They would come in the evening when the sun was starting to go down. It wasn't as hot. And so we find this woman. Jesus is there alone. She's all by herself. It's in the heat of the day, not in the cool of the day when the other women came. And I think it tells us a little bit more about this lady. Not only is she an outcast to a Jew, this woman's an outcast in her own society. She's, she's an outcast even to other Samaritans. It's kind of what it, it seems to imply. We're going to find out more about her background and why that may be true um, here in a little bit. But it just makes it, uh, it's just a, a fascinating thing to consider uh, as well. And now as we move into verse 7, we're going to start the conversation today, but the conversation goes on through verse 26. So we'll be covering the conversation over the course of the next couple of weeks. But what we're going to see throughout the conversation, divine appointment. God had been preparing her. God put Jesus there at just the right time. God orchestrated circumstances so that Jesus would have some alone time with her to share the things that he's going to share with her, and she's going to respond. And, And it's just a beautiful picture. But you know, as we read verse 7, look at what it says. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And you know, as she kind of, whatever she did, walked around the corner, walked up the hill, she sees the well. And almost every day, you could imagine she's going there to draw water around noon by herself in solemnity. And, and she looks over and she sees a man sitting at the well. And, and she was probably shocked at some level um, because she could, she could recognize, um, and, and they could in these days, recognize from afar, this was a Jewish man. This, so now she's a little even more nervous. You know, this is not good, right? This is not good. She didn't see this coming. And so, again, drawing water, daily necessity for households during this time. So she's there to do that. Uh, again, the fact that she came in the heat of the day by herself, very unusual, Again, probably spoke to her standing even within her own culture. Um, She was probably used to being there by herself. That's probably why she chose that time of day. No one wants to go out at noon, right? I mean, we're going to start mowing our lawns here in a couple months or maybe now, I don't know. (laughs) You don't do it. You don't typically do it at noon. You don't typically go out in the heat of the day unless you have to, right? And so she's choosing that. She's been there by herself. She sees someone there, not just anyone. She sees uh, a Jewish man. And again, based on the hostility, and we're, we're going to see a little bit of that hostility come through in this discussion. She's probably working herself up as she's on her way, making her final approach to the well. What's this guy doing here? Is he going to say something to me? Is he going to, is he going to criticize? I mean, are we going to get into an argument about religion? Is he, you know, you could just see, and, and you ever, you ever done that before? I mean, not, not that that's a good thing, but you kind of know that you see somebody that's, that's very argumentative, and you're like, oh, here we go. Here we go. I mean, like, I, just, I just wanted to come do this, and now i got to see this person. They're going to criticize me. They're going to ask me this question. They're going to get up all in my business. And so I, we don't know that that's what she was thinking, but, but, but clearly th- from the conversation, we're going to see she's a little worked up. She's a little upset and just kind of amped up here, and rightfully so. She's used to drawing water on her own. But she doesn't turn around and go home. She probably needs the water, so she's just going to soldier through. Whatever. If he says something to me, whatever. I'm just going to pull the water and go. And so I think her idea was get the water, ignore the man, go home, move on to the next day. That was kind of her idea. She didn't know she was about to have the conversation of a lifetime. She just wasn't aware that God had other plans for her day 
than what she had planned. Now, Jesus, you're going to see, initiates the conversation. And this is one of those situations, kind of like back in chapter 2, where, where Jesus you know, said to his mom, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? And we're like, whoa. And Jesus was a, was a savage the way he talked to people. I thought he was kind. Well, again, in the language, it, it looks like he's like, hey, give me a drink. You know, you, you lowly Samaritan, you know, give me a drink. That's, that's not it. In fact, you're going you're gonna to see. In fact, look, we'll just get in. Let me read the verse and then we'll, we'll kind of get into it. Um, so verse, verse seven, again, uh, he, he just says, give me a drink. And, and so here's what we've got to understand, that the fact that Jesus even speaks to her is unusual. It, it's outside of the cultural norms. And, and we're going to kind of analyze that uh, a little bit more here as we go. Because not only was she a Samaritan, but she was also a woman, which many viewed, especially in the Jewish community, as second-class citizens. And, and men would not speak to women. In fact, notice, just jump down at verse 27. Notice the disciples' reaction to seeing him speaking to a woman. He says, at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman because it was outside of societal norms. That was odd. You, you know, especially Jewish rabbis did not do that. In fact, many Jewish men during this time would only speak to their wives or their mother in public. They wouldn't speak other women, and they definitely wouldn't speak to other women unless their husband was present. That was a major cultural societal faux pas. In fact, the daily prayer, you've heard me say this before, the daily prayer of an Orthodox Jewish man was, I thank God that you haven't made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. So they were like right up on that category with Gentiles and slaves, you know, in terms of culturally speaking. And I love what the Bible knowledge commentary said here. He said, the normal prejudices of the day prohibited public conversation between men and women, between Jews and Samaritans. So there's two strikes against Jesus. And especially between strangers, there's three strikes against him societally. Uh, A Jewish rabbi would rather go thirsty than violate these proprieties. And that was... The average rabbi, the typical rabbi, but, but clearly Jesus is an average, and he's not typical in, by any stretch of the imagination, as we'll see. And again, as I mentioned, he says, give me a, a, a drink. It is in the command. It's an imperative. Uh, may seem like a harsh way to speak, but we got to go to the context to see how it was received. And, and clearly, she views it as a request. Look at how she describes it in verse 9. Uh, she's, she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me? Okay, so it was a it's a, it's a way of communicating a request is what he's doing here. It's not just be like, you know, you're a, you're a Samaritan woman. Give me a drink right now. You know, I feel sorry for all of our flight attendants that, uh, that work in the flight attendant industry and, and come to church here. I mean, I hear the, the horror stories of the entitled passengers in the airline industry. Oh, my goodness. It's like they would say, give me a drink, but it would be more on the hardcore side. <laughs> like, you worthless peasant, you know, kind of deal. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's asking her for a drink. By the way, it makes sense. If it's 150 feet deep, Jesus doesn't have the right tools. She's going to point that out. You know, he doesn't have the right tools to get a drink. She does. And this is why he, he asked her for one. We see in verse 8, the disciples had cleared out. Verse 8 tells us, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, interesting insight as well because many Jews would not purchase food from the Samaritans. So this is kind of, they're, they're kind of branching out in some ways as well. 
And so, again, it also helps us, I think, with the time frame. I mentioned this earlier. If it was 6 o'clock, Roman reckoning, they'd probably be looking for lodging as well. But they're just going to get food. And so I think the game plan was simple. Eat, drink, get back on the road to a city or area probably outside of Samaria was the goal. Um, I won't bring the map up again, but you, you, there was a city up there that John the Baptist was baptizing in called um, Anon, and that was outside of Samaria. It actually belonged to Decapolis, even though it was on the west side of the Jordan. They probably were going to head up there and find a place for lodging, you know, just a, a little bit more of a hike, um, on their way to Galilee. Now, what's really odd about this, and again, we just don't, we just don't pick, pick up cultural gnomes, uh, unless someone points them out to us. We, we're not even aware we should be aware sometimes when we're reading through the Bible. What's odd about this is that all the disciples went. You notice that? All of them went. Typically, a few would have went and a few would have stayed with Jesus. That's typically how these kind of things went. They all went. And, and I love that because you know why they all went? Because God did not send them a meeting invite to this meeting. They were not included in this meeting. So he he shushes them into the city to go get food, all of them, so that Jesus can have one-on-one time with this woman, probably knowing that if there were multiple men there, she may not have even showed circumstantially. So he clears the path for her. He clears the path completely so that Jesus can speak to her and fulfill this meeting. And so again, the circumstances that allowed for this was simply amazing. It was the divine appointment. And you can see that when Jesus says something to her in verse 9, she is completely shocked. John's going to give us an editorial comment to tell us why she's completely shocked. But you're going to see it in the way she questions. She says in verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And she's spelling it out for him in case, you know are you a little bit slow? You know, like you, a Jew, you know, you're a Jew, right? You know, I'm a woman and I'm Samaritan. It's like, she's like slowing it down, spelling out. I mean, she's shocked. And then John, for his Gentile audience, gives us this editorial comment. I love John's editorial comments. They're really helpful, actually, because it also clues you in that we should look more. And he says this at the end of verse nine, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so again, she recognizes Jesus is doing things that no one else, is, no one else does. It, it, he's unique in this way. She's caught off guard. You know, she probably wasn't expecting him to say anything to her, really. And, and yet he's like, give me a drink. Now, additionally, we learn that he asked her for a drink, which implies what? Jesus was going to use the same exact utensil or cup that she used. That's another social, societal faux pas. Like, that was just a main No, no. And this really actually brings us to John's editorial comment, because uh, even the Gentiles may not have been aware of this cultural prejudice, but having no dealings, when he says they have no dealings, it doesn't mean they don't talk to each other. It doesn't mean that they don't do business. They don't trade or, or, or engage in commerce together. I mean, we just saw the disciples go into a Samaritan town to buy food. So it doesn't mean that. That's not what he's talking about. Now, they may have avoided that as much as they could. That, that's probably true. I don't think John's talking about that right here. In fact, what it meant is they didn't share things in common. They, you know, they didn't place themselves under obligation for accepting favor, favors from them. Both sides, if you want to just use modern language, thought the other side had the cooties, right? You just thought, like, I'm not going to take their cup. They got the cooties, you know, and both sides would feel that way. They didn't share 
utensils. They wouldn't share cups. In fact, many Jews taught if you shared a cup or you shared a vessel or you shared something with a Samaritan, you were ceremonially unclean. And you had to make that right at the temple. They would actually teach that, even though that went past, obviously, the Mosaic law. In fact, just to paint the picture further of the, the issues with Samaritans, I've got to share some of these things. It's just mind-blowing that people could hate each other this much. I just, but I have to share it. It's just interesting. In the first century, you know, there was a law that was put on the books by the Jewish religious leaders. And this was the law. They said that all Samaritan daughters were menstruants from their cradle, making them perpetually unclean. This was a Jewish law. So we're, we're looking at a Samaritan daughter here. And basically, Jewish law says from the time she's born until the time she dies, she's like a woman who's bleeding. That's what, how Jews felt about Samaritan women. We see prayers from Pharisees that actually prayed. Can you imagine this? Listen to this. Pharisees actually prayed that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. They asked God, please don't raise any Samaritans in the resurrection. They didn't want any of them to be saved. Can you imagine that attitude? And then obviously in in John 8, later the Pharisees are are, are really reaching in the bag of insults for Jesus. And what is one one they pull out in John 8, 48? You're a Samaritan. Boom. roasted, right? I mean, that's kind of the idea that, that they're doing. They're using that as a term of just degradation and, and description of Jesus. And so, as I said, a typical Jewish rabbi would rather go thirsty. You, just trying to paint that picture a little bit more, why this was so significant, rather than violate these well-established cultural proprieties. In asking for a drink, Jesus was asking to use the same cup that she was using for herself, and nobody would do that in that day. A very big Deal. So obviously we know Jesus wasn't your typical rabbi, wasn't your typical person. He had a, a game plan in mind. He knows all people as we looked at, and we're about to see that over the course of the next two weeks. And, and just like Nicodemus, what we're going to see is this woman doesn't recognize her biggest need. In fact, she's going to get in the conversation with Jesus. Jesus is going to start talking. She thinks her biggest need is, oh, this guy's got water that never ends, so I'll just, I don't have to come draw water anymore at the well. Yay, I don't have to be out in the sun anymore. Like she thought that was her biggest need. Jesus knew that she had her biggest need, that only he could provide her biggest need, and that was eternal life. You know, it's ironic. A friend of mine said this years ago, I just, so I got to give him credit, but it's a great, it's, I, it was just a very powerful statement to me. And he said, this woman thinks that Jesus is asking her for a drink because he was thirsty, and he's actually asking her for a drink because she's thirsty and she doesn't know it. And that's exactly what we're going to see over the course of the next two weeks. I hope you can join us. Uh, we'll keep in that conversation next week. Let me pray. Also, if you're joining for the survey evangelism, we'll get started in about 15 minutes. Let me pray though. Lord, I thank you for your word. And even as we move through this passage, which was somewhat logistical, uh, setting the stage for the conversation that you have with this woman in, of Samaria, we're just reminded, at least I hope we are, uh, of your great character and your great love and your great concern for people. And Lord, we, we just rejoice to know that that's how you, you think about us. That's how you care for us. Lord, we're, we're mind blown by that because we know ourselves. We know on our worst days it just, just how unworthy we really are of that kind of attention and care. And yet, through your grace, Lord, you 
you still determined to do that. You're just incredible. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.